My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a retired command sergeant major with over 30 years of service to this country. It seems like an odd story that he would rise from the rank of private to command sergeant major, especially because he initially enlisted because of his best friend. He completed his first full tour and decided to leave the military service and become a missionary. He left the service, but the service never left him. He enlisted in the Guard and worked with 1st Battalion, 211th ARB, and 19 Special Forces. He's deployed to the Middle East and was even stationed there during the horrendous events that happened on September 11, 2001. Personally, he had to recover and continued to lead his family when his wife passed away suddenly and still continued to grow as a father, a leader, and a man. He's here to tell a story of love, loss, and life lessons that he learned over his career. I'm excited to introduce Bradley Jones. What's going on, man? DJ, it's uh, great to be here, bud. Um, love your show. I'm a big fan, so um, I'm just grateful to be here. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, this book that you released, Treading the Deep. Now, of course, right now it's on Amazon where you can download it, but in June it comes out where it's going to be an actual book form. Um Let's talk about that real quick. Why did you decide to do it that way? Um, well, first, in the Sergeant Major Academy, you know, I did the non-resident portion, and that was two years. And when I got done with the course, I had quite a body of work. And um, it was when I got – when you do 10-page papers, I mean, it, uh, it, it tends to lend itself to writing kind of your history. And a lot of the papers that – we were asked to do were personal experience papers. And so they kind of just let us choose the topic. And so I wrote about some of my experiences that really helped me to become the leader um, that I became and some of the, you know, the uh, mentors that I had and the, the funny things uh, that happened to me. And so um, as I, as I um, got about two years into being a Sergeant Major, uh, my battalion commander said, you should, you should probably write your command philosophy. And I had written a few things, um, about, uh, you know, within the command philosophy realm. And, and so at that point, I just thought, you know, I'm going to just write out, uh, my command philosophy. And then from there, it just literally snowballed. Well, let's, let's start out, you know, early in life. We talked about uh, that you joined kind of with your best friend, that it was his idea and, and that happened. But I want to talk about your family life. And it, it wasn't, I would say, a tumultuous family life growing up, but it definitely wasn't a normal trend. Uh, at one point, your mom uh, moved with a guy to Australia. 
you moved over there for a little bit. You had a really hard time adjusting over there and wanted to come back to the United States. So let's kind of talk about that family basis and how it set you up for not only your military career, but your command philosophy and then how you acted as a father later on, because you bring it up a couple of times in the book. Absolutely. Um, well, my mom, her, her parents, uh, my grandparents moved over to Australia when, when I was probably uh, three. So I have very, very few memories of them. So I basically grew up with a set of grandparents that were in Sydney, Australia. And so my mom went over to visit them and, and then that's how she ended up meeting somebody. And then uh, we ended up moving over there for my um, junior year of high school. And so, you know, going over there and, and kind of one of the stories that I talk about in the book is just, you know, once you leave the United States, then you realize um, you come to some pretty massive realizations about, you know, your country. And um, I realized that, you know, my country meant a lot to me. And uh, I won't, I won't, no spoilers, but there's a funny story about that. And so coming back from Australia, my mom stayed and I came home and lived with my grandparents. And so I had, you know, the, the goal was to finish high school. I did that. And then at that point, I really didn't have a plan. And so my best friend was leaving for uh, the army, already enlisted. And he um, asked me one day to go with him to the recruiting office. And so I said, sure. And so we went over there and, you know, recruiters being recruiters, they asked what, what I was interested in. And, and so I ended up taking a practice ASVAB and doing pretty well on it. And they said, Hey, you can pretty much do anything you want. And I had no, really no vision of what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to go, you know, infantry or something like that. I was, you know, 118 pounds sopping wet. And uh, so um, I hit upon, all of a sudden a memory came back to me while I was looking through jobs. And that was that I love to go to the airport and watch airplanes land. And so I, you know, signed up to be a radar repairman. And, um, and so did that first year, you know, that first enlistment. And um, so the book basically walks you, th you know, through that whole experience of basic training AIT and, and then, you know, going to a duty station and stuff. And, and really the, the essence um, that you hit upon was that uh, you're, you make these associations and, and become, you know, pseudo family members with these soldiers. And, um, and you may not like all of them, but I can promise you that when you get ready to leave, you're going to, you'll realize that I'm going to miss these people. And, um, and so that's kind of what happened in basic training. It's what happened in AIT. Um, and, and now, and then, uh, when I got to my permanent duty station, you're, you're kind of adopted into these families and, and enjoy these, you know, family associations. And, and you, like I said, you may not enjoy all of them, but, um, some of them you'll become best friends with. And, um, you know, the, the book is about the heartbreak of what happens to one of my best friends um, and uh, and the the aftermath of that and how that you know really really had a huge effect on my career and the, and the kind of soldier I became at, at that time um, and that really kind of set the track and then it was a very hard decision to leave the service 
and to to do something that I knew that if I didn't do it, then I wouldn't wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so I did leave the service. Um, had a had a break in uh, my service record, and then you know uh, went down to South America and served down there for two years. But the whole time, I mean, that whole experience was so affected by my military experience. It it just permeated um, my my missionary service. And so, you know, coming back, I can remember distinctly thinking, um, as soon as I get settled wherever I'm at, I'm, I'm going to go and take a look and it might be back in active duty, it, but it turned out to be the national guard. And, and so when I did that, uh, the, you know, aviation, I was already part of aviation branch as a radar repairman. And so as soon as I found out there was an Apache unit here in Utah, I told the recruiter, we don't need to go any further than that unit. Right. So, well, w- with your military service, I want to kind of go back. We got a little ahead of ourselves, but I want to go back to Australia because I, I think that with your mom staying there, you coming back here, that sent you down towards a path because you mentioned it a couple times in the book that you knew you couldn't go back to Oregon. You, you just couldn't. Uh, you, you had family. You got along with them. You saw them on leave and everything like that, but you just couldn't go back. Now, you talk about your dad, too, and we're going to talk about Jack a little later on, which is not your father, but but he is a very important man in your life. Yes. And the reason I bring that up is because you talk about your dad maybe writing one letter to you, not spending a lot of time with him your entire life, mm-hmm. uh, just him kind of being absent from there. With your mom staying in Australia and choosing kind of that life, you coming back here, not having your father – did you kind of feel like you didn't have a family? And do you think maybe that's why the army felt so much like a family so quickly off the bat? Well, I mean, absolutely. I did come home and live with my grandparents and they were very good to me and stuff, but I had that nagging feeling the whole time I was with them like that. And that feeling was, I've got to get out of here. You know, I've got to get out of here. I cannot stay here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to thrive. And, um, and so, you know, I remember right the, the moment I told my dad that I was going into the service and, um, I, I was totally, um, shocked at his reaction because he, he, you know, he was ex- very, very proud and very pleased, um, you know, very complimentary and stuff. I didn't find out until probably, um, probably two or three years ago that my dad actually had gone into the um, service and um, uh, was found to have, uh, was found to be claustrophobic and made it through basic, but then um, was discharged. I didn't know that he never shared that with me. Um, Does does that seem odd to you? Huh? I mean, does that seem odd to you? Yes, that was, that was shocking. I was, I, I went after my dad passed away. I've got some of his, um, some of his personal effects and in, in those personal effects were, um, discharge papers. And I was blown away. had no idea. So when you say you couldn't thrive, of course you got along with your, with your grandparents. Um, you had friends there and everything. When you took this test though, when you took the ASFAB to go in the military and you, you did well enough to go anywhere, I got the feeling from the book, though, you still really didn't have 
kind of an idea of what you wanted to do because you talked about watching planes land, but then you quickly dispel that by saying that you were in a bumpy aircraft. So you didn't want to be on an aircraft. You just wanted to be around aircraft. Yeah. I mean, when the recruiters are like, Oh, you want to be a pilot? No, I don't want to be a pilot. No. So, um, I, I very quickly made that clear. Like I I'm not interested in flying, but I am interested in something technical and they, brought up a few jobs and one of them was radar repairman. And as soon as I saw the job and saw the description, I said, you, you get me that job and I'll, I'll enlist. And within probably uh, a day or two, they, they had the job secured for me and, and the rest is history. Are you glad that you did that? Because they're after basic, you go to AIT, you spend 52 weeks there. It was originally supposed to be 22 weeks, but with delays, with setbacks. And I want to talk about a couple of the setbacks in particular, but do you think that that was a good idea? Are you still happy that you chose that MOS? Do you wish you would have done something else? Because as much as I can think good for it, I can also think bad for that decision. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad I did that. Um, I think that having made, being made to wait for something, um, was, was not easy for me. And I think it was good for me that the, there were delays, um, and there were regular delays between classes, stuff like that. Um, but I also failed that first radar or the first uh, part of the, the tactical radar. So I had to go back a couple months and, and join a, a class that was behind. Um, and so uh, it, that, at that moment, that really set in my mind that this is what I want to do. Because at the time, I was seeing soldiers that were, were saying, I'm done, you know, just discharge me. You know, they'd get the, the, the general discharge, you know, soldier can't adapt to military life, uh, whatever chapter that is, I don't remember. But you know, I was watching people leave and and give up on on that goal, um, and and so I I really at that time I I said it in my mind I I have to do this because I am not going back to Oregon. I'm not going to go back and you know work in a restaurant as a busboy like I was doing before. And so you know there was that 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 moment of determination that set in, and and I. I said, I'm going to graduate from this course. Now, I obviously didn't realize that leaving uh, AIT and going to my permanent duty station, that after all that toil in <laughs> Fort Gordon, that I wasn't going to work on a radar. Um, but, you know, that, that came with its own own set of circumstances and, and, gro- and growth. Well, you know, and you bring that up that you didn't work in that. And and I want to get into that because your first duty station after all these setbacks, after going so long through um, through AIT, and that's a very long time to spend in a school a year, oh, yeah. especially being a young guy. That's a very long time to spend in a school. So you get to Fort Huachuca, which I was stationed at Fort Huachuca for my last duty assignment as as a military police officer. Uh, and when you hear that, that's not the greatest sound in the whole world to get stationed at Fort Huachuca. Now, I ended up loving it. My wife loved it there. Um, yes. But when you hear it, it doesn't seem like the greatest thing. And then I can only imagine arriving there in 1984 that it wasn't really that great other than a bunch of desert and uh, dirt because it was just getting built up when I was stationed there. So you go there. And they tell you right away, look, you're not going to do the job you were going to do. You're going to be in this whole other area. So I've got to know the mentality in your mind of 
you telling yourself, I can't fail. I can't go back to Oregon. I can't do this. And then right when you get to your first duty station, you're, you're just kicked in the gut and said, <laughs> all this thing you did that you stuck out that you put in your mind, put it away. Cause we're not using it. Yeah. And you know, getting, I'd never heard of Fort Huachuca. I didn't know there, I mean, everybody's heard of places like Bragg and Benning and Fort Hood and places like that. And, and my classmates, um, a lot of them went to those places. And you get there and, and you mentioned Jack, uh, and, and here's who I really want to talk about because I think Jack more than anyone else in your career had the most impact on your career. And I think it's from the very beginning you mentioned him as a father figure to you later on in the story, mm-hmm. but I want to know right off the bat, had anyone man wise in your life treated you like Jack did? Um, my grandfather. Okay. You know, and, and the thing was my, my relationship with my dad was good. It's just that he was always kind of at arm's length. You know, he always lived away as soon as my parents got divorced and he remarried you know, he always lived in Boise. He lived in Idaho Falls. He lived in Spokane, moved to Seattle. He always lived, you know, three hours, five hours away right. from us. So we didn't see him that often. He wasn't part of our everyday life. So when you saw him, it was great. And then, you know, you knew it was going to end in a couple of days and, and that's that. And so um, my grandfather, um, I looked, I looked like my, I look exactly like my dad. And so I know when living with my grandparents, um, that that they looked at me as kind of you know a, a, a second version of my dad and so um, I know that they really enjoyed uh, having me there and they were very good to me and he my grandfather um, you know I still hear his voice in my head like I hear Jack's and so, so when you when you go to Jack and, and you tell him, look, I, I'm not supposed to be here. You were really nervous. He was a master sergeant at the time. But you tell him, look, I, I came here to do this job. And he tells you right away. I mean, he definitely could have could taken it a completely different way. But he tells you, I'll take you down there. If you wanted to stay with them, you can stay with them. If you want to come back with me, you can come back with me. With that style of leadership, do you think that carried through through your whole career? Absolutely. I mean, his patience level for me, you know, in that initial encounter with him, um, like I said, it, it has spoke volumes over the year for me as a leader and, and, and recognizing that there, that in younger soldiers, that there's that nervousness when they're around you. Um, and that, and that you, as a leader, uh, at least in my opinion, it's always a good thing to try to bridge that gap and and um jack was very gracious and saying hey let's let's go down to the radar lab if if you want to i don't have a problem with you if you want to transfer down there um and so you know we go down there and obviously find out hey um it's this isn't you know this isn't the place to be they're they're all going somewhere else and waiting for orders um and then to have him kind of say well let me show you this other thing and and to take me out to, I mean, we went out to the Black Tower and I got to see UAVs. Those were, that was in 1986. Th- those things were, were state of the art. And basically um, that was the genesis of, of drones. And, and then uh, night vision goggles. Um, those hadn't been fielded yet. 
And I got to see some of the really early, uh, early versions and was blown away that, you know, you could actually walk into a dark room and see everything, um, stuff like that. So for him to like, take the time to kind of take me to a couple of uh, facilities on the base. And I mean, cause you, EPG, and you probably know this from being there, it's spread out all over that base. Um, and so, um, he, he took the time to show me those things and then, you know, it was kind of like, well, what do you think? And I was, I was thoroughly impressed. And so it was, that was an easy decision to go, okay, I, I can get behind this. Now, when you get behind it, though, you still have some troubles along the way. And I like that you point out in there that, that when Jack talks to you or any of his troops for that matter, he was very good at ass chewing and getting you to do what he wanted you to do. But the moment that was over, it was gone. It was never brought back up again. It was not held against you later on. And there were some times like with the FTA that you had taped up on your locker. And if people don't know what that means, fuck the army. Uh, yeah. It could also mean, I think you put fun travel and amusement or <laughs> yes. something like that. But things like that, that a young soldier does that may not have their head quite on straight yet, may not have the ideals of what they will when they grow into an NCO and stuff. He took it all in stride with you. He absolutely did. I'm, and, and I knew, I knew when he brought that up in that meeting that he, he could have called me out in front of everybody and, you know, and told, and told everybody where, you know, whose room it was that had the FTA on their locker, but he didn't. Um, and, you know, I was, I was, I was equally shocked that he didn't do that, but also extremely guilty that I, you know, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, Oh, I let him down. You know, I sh shouldn't have done that. That was so stupid. Um, but you know, he, at some point or early on, he said, he said to, you know, us young soldiers, like, Hey, I may get mad, but you know, once I'm, once I'm done chewing ass, then it's over. You know, as long as you guys, you know, do what you're asked to do or meet the expectation, then, then we're fine. I don't hold a grudge. It's done and over with. I don't want to hold on to it. And that was the first time I ever really heard a leader uh, enunciate something like that, a, a principle, uh, like a solid principle like that. So um, Jack, um, I mean, he, his, his prints are all over me as a leader. Well, you know, and you're talking about the 80s. That's not the kind of NCO that was normally, especially at that rank that was around. That's a guy that had been around, uh, seen a lot of stuff. And and coming to the end of his career in the 80s, uh, that was not a, a very normal thing to see. Another person that I want to talk about from there is Roger. Uh, and there's a lot of things that happen with Roger. Now, Roger was an E5, the way I understood it in the yeah. book. But he was one that worked with you, kind of took you under his wing, and um, he expected things too. And that was another kind of misstep on your part, maybe being young, maybe not knowing everything that you thought since you guys worked out and were so close together and hung out, that it was a different kind of relationship than it was between, say, you and Jack. Right. No, he, I, you know, the bottom line was I tested him. And, and I, I got the results and he, you know, let me know in no uncertain terms. Like when I tell you to be somewhere, you better be there. And, um, and 
And I just remember, you know, saying, uh, no problem, won't, won't happen again. And so, you know, he was another example of somebody like, like Jack and, and, and I know Jack mentored him also, um, cause Roger had been there for a while before me. And so, uh, he, you know, he was mad, but he got over it. And then all of a sudden, boom, his sense of humor came back and, and, but I real I real recognized at the time, like, okay, you know, this, this guy means what he says, just like Jack does. And, and, um, the, the inclination to want to test him because he's my friend, um, is done and over with because I, I realized, um, and I, and I also recognized at the time that Roger had, you know, kind of a mystique about him, uh, and a certain level of respect among the, you know, E6s and E7s in the shop, um, for his, for his knowledge, you know, he, he knew that job inside and out and the fact that he, you know, pulled me along and, and kind of ushered me into that group of older soldiers, um, was, was monumental. Uh, and I, like I said, I, and I didn't recognize it so much at the time. It didn't really kind of distill upon me until, you know, further down the road. And I realized, you know, what he had done for me and, and the effect that he had on me. So, um, it was kind of like Jack Jr. to me. You don't meet Jack. You don't meet Roger. What happens to you in your first four years? Um, I, I don't, I, I was, I think I put in the book that I felt like I was rudderless for, for that, you know, for that going to that first duty assignment. I don't know that I would have turned out the way I did. Honestly, I don't think I would have been of the caliber, um, that, that I, you know, obviously had the potential to become and, and hopefully became in, in that time. Um, and so I, I, I just, I don't, uh, I don't think it would, it wouldn't have turned out as, as well. I wouldn't have progressed as far as I did without meeting Roger and Jack and especially with, you know, what happened with Roger. Um, and I, and I won't say, but you know, in the book, um, and, and being able to, to, to honor him. Uh, and I felt like I, you know, for, for both of those guys that I've, this book is a way of honoring, honoring them. Well, I want to talk about that. And, and you say you don't want to spoil too much, but I think it's important to talk about Roger because I saw an overarching kind of statement in your book from the very beginning to the end. I mean, you even mention it in basic training. You seem to point out a lot of times that the last time you see people, whether they PCS, whether they leave the service, whether what, for whatever reason you're saying goodbye to them, you'll never see them again. And it starts to become ingrained in your head that you'll never see them again, even if that may not necessarily be true. When something happens like with Roger, and I, I hope that we can open up and talk about it, uh, of, of what happened to him, him being killed in Manila, mm -hmm. do you think that that kind of cemented that fact in your brain? Like when when I say goodbye, that's it. Um, I, I think it was just more of a general kind of, um, knowledge that, you know, you, you come together with these people, you, you bond with them through your experiences, whether it's basic or school or, you know, a duty station or, or what have you. And, 
you know, chances are that you're probably not going to see them, and especially in, in like Jack's case, because I mean, Jack was older, you know, and um, and you know, Roger obviously was was probably five years older than me, um, and so his death was absolutely a, a tremendous shock, um, and and so I think it was just more kind of the the lamenting or the the sadness following um you know when your best friend moves away you know when you were young and you had you know had a best friend and all of a sudden you find out oh well they're you know they're moving across the country and and that you know can have a huge effect on on a on a soldier or on a person and um and so you know with with jack i i i at least had him there through through the majority of that time um and roger and i kept in contact while he was in the philippines he we i still have his his postcards um that he sent me and so you know there there was always that with him at least you know hey let's get together if let's get together if we can um later on down the road and um i've and the great thing about social media is that i think that it's reuniting a lot of a lot of veterans that have lost contact with people that they had, um, you know, regular everyday experiences with, but also extremely, you know, stressful, harrowing experiences. Um, I think it's bringing those people back together. And I think the generation of, you know, the, the first Gulf War and, and the, you know, invasion of Iraq and stuff like that. I think those soldiers and service members are starting to come back together now and starting to, you know, they, they had a time where they were away from each other, where they got out of the service and got on with their lives and stuff. Well, now they're realizing the value of coming together again. Um, I didn't have that opportunity with Jack. I did talk to him on the phone. I, I, I found him in 1980 or 1996. I found him and I called him in Atlanta, Georgia, and I talked to him on the phone and I thanked him. And that was right before I went to Kuwait on that first deployment right before September 11th, um, I was able to, to thank him and, and tell him, um, this is how, this is where my career has gone. And, you know, thank you for all that you did for me. But I want to, I bring that up, Brad, because even if you look back to basic training, you talk about it with your battle buddy about you guys leaving and you never seeing anybody again. And so when you say that, that, that it was maybe just a, a thought in your head, I, I, I still believe that it was more than that with you. Well, I mean, I, I may have, you know, may have attributed more, um, more to it. Um, basically having, you know, kind of going through a divorce and moving, you know, out of the country you know, that kind of stuff, those kind of transitions in your life where your life changes from one day to the next. Um, and so when I went to basic, I mean, that wasn't, that was a shocking experience, but at the same time, I'd already left Oregon and went to a completely different place. Absolutely. You know, um, totally different than the States, totally different than Oregon from where I grew up. And so I, I think with, um, you know, with, with my battle buddy and stuff, I, I've searched for him for years and I honestly just got in contact with him probably about a year and a half, two years ago. And he's in Dallas, Texas. 
And we were at Fort Hood when I was mobbing for Afghanistan. He was stationed there. We were there for three months together, and I never knew it. Wow. So let's talk about a couple more of the, I guess, missteps and some stuff that you had done in your career. Let's talk about PLDC when you get sent there. Now, you moved up rather quickly. Jack uh, entrusted you with a lot of stuff, and you moved up rather quickly um, in the ranks. Uh, you were also chosen to go to PLDC. You were getting ready to do a big R&D research project, and you asked if you could maybe get out of it. They said they were going to send you anyway. But you get sent to PLDC, uh, which is kind of your first non-commissioned officer school for people that don't know. It's it's your first kind of leadership school in the military. And you don't necessarily start off bad, but you don't start out as the star student. And mm -hmm. it, it only seems to get worse until the very end. Well, it, you know, going there, especially right after Christmas leave, I basically went from Oregon all the way down to uh, to Wachuca and then the next day drove to Fort Bliss. So I was dr driving, you know, halfway across the country. And, um, you know, part of me didn't want to be there because part of me wanted to be w w on the project where everybody was going to Fort Walton Beach, Florida for like three months. Um, and knowing that I got taken off that project you know, for this school and, and Jack was, he was very direct about it. No, this is not about you, you know, chasing girls and getting a tan on the beach. This is about your career. And that was, that was a hard pill to swallow. Um, and I, that was the, really the only time I ever really felt like I pushed him as far as I felt I could push him and trying to talk him into letting me stay on the project. Um, but nonetheless, uh, and, you know, there's, there definitely some, some, uh, my car broke down and I had to get it fixed and, you know, got back to watch you late and, you know, was unprepared really to go, had somebody else got my gear for me. And so packed up my car and, and headed out to El Paso, Texas and Fort Bliss. And, um, and so being in that, in that first environment, you know, I was, I was pretty young. I probably, I'd only been an E4 for probably, I don't know, six months by then. Um, and so I had gotten my E3 right before I got to watch you And then Jack put me in for a promotion and surprised me within a couple months of being there. And so that, that came like well before I had ever imagined it. Um, and so sitting in the, in, you know, in the, the classroom environment there, um, and, and trying to absorb this material that I, I, I guess at the time I felt like, when am I going to be able to use this? You know, I'm still like a junior, you know, back in the shop. Um, but I didn't, and, and then, and then of course, you know, getting kicked out of the course. Um, and the backstory behind that is that that crew that I was working the project on showed up to El Paso, showed up to Fort Bliss the the day that we got our 24-hour pass. That was actually in the original book, and we had to cut it cut it down. So that part got cut out. So we're at the formation to be released, and I'm looking across the parking lot, and I see all my buddies from Huachuca from the project are standing around a car, and I'm thinking, what are they doing here? And I realized, oh, my gosh, that's right. They... They had to stop 
at Fort Bliss for a course. Well, they came to pick me up from the pass, and I was so freaked out that they were there that when they changed the time of the formation, I it just went right over my head. Didn't even hear it. Um, and so I took off with them, and they had hotel rooms and rental cars, and 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 so we went out and you know staked dinners and had a great time, and and it was Super Bowl Sunday. It was the the Super Bowl where the Giants won won, um, and anyway, so then I end up going back, and I'm an hour late for the return formation, and then just all hell breaks loose, and and they put me through the gauntlet in that, and um, part of me just wanted it to be over and then the other part of me was like they're they're testing you they're trying to see what you're made of and i you know i i'm so glad that i i went and and then the, i know in the one part i called back to the shop and told him i i got kicked out you know i talked to jack and you know jack's concern was hey we'll deal with this when you get back just get back here safely get a good night's sleep and then drive back tomorrow. Don't drive back today. I said, you know, okay. Um, and then, and then one thing led to another and I, I was able to, to appeal and, and get reinstated and, and finish out. Um, but I, you know, I painted rocks and chip paint off doors and cleaned up, you know, break areas and, you know, stripped and, um, waxed and buffed floors for the rest of the time I was there and and graduated with the most emerits in the history of the NCO Academy at Fort Bliss. Yeah, what was that number? It was uh well that it was they told me it was two million, over two million. I already had twenty five um demerits. Um and they have a chart and so it was like it was one demerit for every thirty seconds you were late, but it doubled every thirty seconds. So, you know, it went one, two, four, eight, 16. Um, it was, I was 57 minutes late. So that's 114 times doing that. And it goes, it goes exponential. And so um, I never knew exactly, I've never even calculated it out, but they, they had some chart and they were like, they're like, you have over 2 million, 2 million demerits. And, and so once I made it through the course, um, that, that kind of, um, I, I kind of gained a little bit of popularity in the course as the, oh, that's the soldier that has all the demerits, um, and still graduated. And then I had a couple of buddies that went late, you know, a couple of years after that. And, and they were like, they're still talking about the soldier from Arizona that graduated with the most demerits in the history of the course. Well, and it also introduced you to a sergeant major at uh, Fort Huachuca. It also got you in with him uh, because the commandant of the NCO Academy and him were good friends. I couldn't believe it when he told me that. When uh, Sergeant Major Harris told me that, that they that they talked to each other on the phone about me. And and uh, and so, um, you know, and that and having having sergeant major harris also you know he bridged the gap with me as a leader um he came down and said hey let's go to lunch and of course i didn't realize he was going to tell me um you know that he had talked to the commandant and and if i got kicked out he was going to drive out and and you know uh 
have he'll have his driver drive my car while I drove drove his, and he sat in the passenger side and chewed my ass for 400 miles. Um, so, um, you know, it, it it was another experience where a leader, um, you know, bridged the gap with me and and um, made a huge impression on me, even though I was absolutely a nervous wreck when I was around him. I could not relax around Sergeant Major Harris. Um, but at the same time, he, he did try to talk to me about, you know, regular everyday things and the fact that he invited me to meet his sisters and, you know, and to go to dinner with him the last night of, of you know, the last day of him being in uniform um, had, a, that, that had a huge impact on me. Um, that he came out and, and, you know, pulled me aside and said, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like you to go to dinner with me. Um, that was, uh, monumental and, and I have never forgotten it. And so I think as a, as a leader, those kind of things, the things that Jack did, the things that Roger did always were always percolating in the back of my mind when it came to, um, communicating with my soldiers and, and, um, and, you know, meant trying to mentor them along or at least bridge the gap with them as a sergeant major because once you get there then you realize people will will tell you to your face I, I'm, I, you're, you make me nervous well you kind of come to the end of your career roger has passed away sergeant major has retired uh due to an illness uh jack is now over in germany uh, to finish out his career, one more stint in Europe before he retires. And you're given the option, do you want to reenlist? Jack even talked to you about it to, to reenlist. You thought about it for a while, but you passed up on it. Now, Mark, from what I understood, your brother was a missionary. Right. Uh, completely opposite of what you had been doing for these past couple of years. But you decide you're going to leave the service. You're going to join the mission, too. Uh -huh. uh, and you're going to go to South America and work. What was it so much that called you after these four years of service? What was it called you to there? Because you're never really highly religious in the first part of the book or throughout yeah. your military career. So what was it that kind of shifted those gears and put you on a mission? Um, it, it was, it was my brother. It was Mark. Um, you know, I saw the change in him. I saw how much growth he he um, experienced um, for his ser missionary service. And um, because I was able to go see him, um, he served in Boston, Massachusetts, um, in New Hampshire and, and Maine and, and Massachusetts. Um, and I was able to go see him when I was stationed at Fort Gordon. Um, so I was able to um, get up and visit him a couple times. Uh, and so I saw the change in him. And it just seemed to give like some direction, more direction. Um, and I, I think that the, 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 my association with Jack and Roger and stuff definitely helped me, um, you know, establish a rudder or fix the rudder that was already there. Um, and so I think the missionary service was just a continuation of that. And um, I knew that if I didn't do it then that I, that I would be too old to do it. And I mean, that, and I had been um, engaged uh, and had, you know, a girlfriend here and there that I, I felt like things could have gotten serious with them, but I, I really wanted to do something that, um, 
that was um, unique. And, um, and so I, I chose that opportunity to, to go down there. And, and, um, and like I said, it just, the, everything that, that I had experienced in the four years set the stage for that whole experience down there. And so I, I honestly, when we, when we were leaving to go to Argentina, I recognized that the missionaries around me, a lot of them had never even been out of the state of Utah or, or out of their home state, wherever that was. Um, and to leave the country was a, was a big deal. You know, that was, that was, it made them nervous, uncertain. Um, and to me, it felt like a big giant adventure. Uh, and so I, I kind of recognized that what was going on in, um, when we were traveling. And so I was able to at least kind of say something to him like, Hey guys, it's going to be, everything's going to be fine. We're going to be fine. You know? Um, and then going down there and, um, just experiencing, you know, a completely different culture and, um, it, you know, it just, it has a huge effect on, on you. People ask me, um, you know, they want to criticize the U S fine. You know, we're, we're Americans, you know, we have the right to complain, but I can tell you one thing. Um, you go down to Embassy Row in, in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and there aren't lines in front of the embassy um, to get paperwork to get into France or to get into Belgium or to get into, um, you know, Europe or Africa or any other country. But there's a line in front of the embassy of the United States that goes down the block and around the corner and down that block. And I saw that with my own two eyes on, on Embassy Row. And, and, and that, that said a lot to me about my country and, and what, you know, what it stands for. And so, you know, coming back, I think I just had, had felt like the service never left me. And I had, I had met, run into people along the way that kind of confirmed that. They, that if they had got, you know, if they did a four-year enlistment or, or something and, and gotten out, they they were kind of quick to say, like, I really miss it, you know. Um, man, yeah, you just, you, you, you're never really around uh, that team environment like you are in the service. And so, um, like I said, it never left me. And so when I came back to the States, I had, I had that in the back of my mind, like, um, when things get figured out, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, look into it again and see if I can continue to serve. I want to point out one other thing about your missionary trip. You talk about changing perspective and just in two years, how you were able to change your perspective of when you got there to when you left, uh, what was it about or what was the kind of the match point that made you change perspective? Um, well, I mean, it, it kind of centered around the fact that I walked into the airport in, in Buenos Aires and looked around and thought, what a dump, you know? Um, and then, you know, but you, you know, you get in with the people and you realize that, you know, it's, it's the people that matter and not, and not the facilities. And so when I ended up, it was probably a year, a little over a year later when I, when I, uh, um, or two, you know, close to two years later when I went, but, back to the airport to leave and I walked into the airport and I looked around and I was like, this place isn't so bad. And I, you know, I realized at the time, like being in, in a separate, you know, in a different country than, 
than the country you were raised in and and seeing the differences in in how um just how cities are set up and i kind of describe it the book where you know you you go down there and then you realize oh that's why we have zoning laws in in the states oh that's why we're we're told on the prices right every morning to spay and neuter our our animals you know <laughs> because you see the results if you don't you know so <laughs> so you come back to the United States, you decide you're going to go back to college. Now at this point, you're like 26 years old, 27 years old. I was, and you're uh, I was 25, 25. So you come back 25 years old. You finally start going to college, uh, and experience that college life. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about having been from the military to the mission to college. There are three completely separate worlds. So as you come into this third one, I want to know kind of your thoughts on it. And then I want to go into meeting uh, Randy and all those kind of things and how life kind of took a whole new direction one more time. Well, I mean, the, the one good thing about um, my military service uh, and, and, and for all, you know, all people that enlist is that when I got back, I had money set aside uh, for college. I didn't have the GI Bill, but I had a, a similar program called uh, Veep. Um, and so that paid me, you know, monthly uh, while I was enrolled in school. And so I looked at that as like, I don't want that to go to waste. Um, and I can, I can use it right now and, and, um, and get the education part of the, the knowledge that I, that I already had. Because I was by that point, um, especially after four years, and in and through or three years in Wachuca, I was pretty um, a pretty good troubleshooter. I didn't I didn't work on radars, but I got to work on computer systems and um, for uh, some major systems that had yet to be fielded. So, in my mind, I wanted to kind of go back and get the get the schooling portion of it out of out of the way or behind me. Um, and so, uh, and I had that money, and I was like, okay, well this, this, um, seems like the place to be. And, you know, college life was fantastic. Um, it was all, it was all the things that I'd ever heard of, you know, friends, uh, football games, you know, I happened to be here, um, in Provo for, um, Ty Detmer senior season. He won the Heisman trophy and, um, was a fantastic quarterback to go every Saturday, to walk a block away to the stadium and with 68,000 other people and, and watch a football game, just stuff like that was just awesome. And then, you know, being here, I'd never lived here before, but I'd been at Huachuca and that's high desert. And I came here and the hiking and I mean, mountain biking wasn't really, you know, like it is today, but the hiking uh, and, um, and climbing and stuff were, were, amazing here. Um, and so, you know, being in the, that environment in, in a, in a college setting was, was, was awesome. It was, it was a great time. And then, um, you know, obviously meeting Randy and, um, recognizing that, you know, early on, like, I'd like, I'd like to get to know her and, um, and how that really, uh, you know, had it had a massive impact on the rest of my life, you know, for obvious, obvious reasons. 
But do you think going there at 25, do you think that helped you? Yeah. I mean, I was, it didn't take long for people to, uh, friends, um, to at least, you know, in a lot of cases ask me, how old are you? Um, and I certainly didn't look my age at the time. Um, but you know, in, in like when I was in Argentina, it was like, okay, well, that's the missionary that was in the army for four years, um, before. And so, um, that kind of set me apart a little bit amongst that group that I had already been out in the world. And, um, and so, you know, coming back to, um, to Provo and entering school and stuff, um, I, I think, uh, somehow or it didn't take long for people to, that didn't know me to find, find out either by asking or by somebody else that, yeah, I was, I was a little bit older. And, um, and so, um, you know, Randy was, she was, um, she was already a junior at that point. So she was, you know, she was a little bit older than the, <clears throat> excuse me, than the crowd, than the regular crowd. Um, the, freshmen and stuff like that. And so um, I think we're kind of at that point where we were both recognized that, um, okay, well, it, it, it seems, it seems reasonable to take the next step in a relationship if that's, if, if that's, you know, how you feel about each other. Um, and so um, she had a missionary call. She was supposed to go to Argentina also, and I didn't want to stop her from going. And so um, you know, we dated and I, and I enjoyed every minute of it, but I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking she's leaving, you know, and I don't want to stop her cause I know where she's going. And, um, and so, um, you know, that kind of set some stuff in motion for us to really kind of evaluate, um, how we felt about each other and what that meant because some decisions had to be made about her, uh, going or not going. Well, when you talk about that going or not going and, and she decides to stay, so you guys end up getting married. Um, you decide that, that, you know, that was the whole reason that she stayed, that, that this relationship needed to start. You guys get married. I thought it was interesting that you got married during the Rodney King riots uh, in L.A. and uh, a lot was going on around there. Uh, you guys wanted to start your life and kind of, you know, get moving in that next direction with children, everything like that. But I want to talk uh, a lot about the, the illness and stuff because it seemed to come <clears throat> kind of out of nowhere. Uh, it seemed to disappear, then come back. And, and there was a couple different kind of weighing in points. So if we can, let's talk about you guys starting a family, you joining the National Guard uh, and having a child and then a second child and then a third child, but really um, everything that's going on while you're also fighting this illness. And, you know, really early on, I mean, um, looking back on it now, I, I, I pretty much recognize that Randy was probably suffering uh, or was suffering from depression back then. And, and so, you know, the, I don't, I don't care who you are when you, when you join your life with another person, it, it, it causes some, some stresses and stuff that you, that you probably were never anticipating. We all go through the, you know, the, the in love stage and, 
um, the euphoria of that and stuff. And then, and think, Oh, well, okay, well, you know, if we get married, then we just, that continues. Well, um, you know, in a lot of time, a lot of, uh, relationships, um, when they get married and stuff, all of a sudden the, the, the weight of the, 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 um, relationship, um, and the responsibility of it sets in and stuff. And so, you know, I think there was, um, Randy was very close to her dad. Um, she's the, she was the middle child. She was kind of the confidant of everybody in the family, her older sister, her younger sister, you know, her dad and her mom. And, um, and so I think there was probably some depression issues that weren't, weren't, were never addressed then, um, looking back on it. Uh, but as soon as we got married, then her, her parents' marriage started to go down like the Titanic and they'd been married for 33 years. And, um, and so, you know, we, we basically kind of were on the sidelines watching this whole thing unfold. And, um, and her, uh, you know, her kind of being in that role of confidant with, uh, with both parents was absolutely not healthy for her. Um, and I, you know, I didn't handle it all that well, um, as a husband, um, or really as a friend. And, and so, you know, in, in that, you know, microcosm of your life, that causes a certain amount of, of, of stress and strain that w is going to come out somehow, some way it's going to come out. It's either going to come out physically, it's going to come out, you know, emotionally or mentally or, or spiritually or all of the above. Um, and so, uh, you know, Randy was, was, uh, you know, after Matt came and, and, and we, we thought, okay, well, you know, some of the health things may, may have been related to being pregnant. Um, and then Adara came shortly thereafter and stuff. And then we thought, okay, well, okay, let's see how this, how things kind of level out after, you know, after Adara was born and stuff. And they just, they never did. And, you know, one doctor would say, oh, you know, I think you might have, you know, Epstein-Barr or, um, I'd never heard of fibromyalgia. I'd ne never heard of chronic fatigue syndrome or any of that stuff. Um, and so uh, those were all kind of really, honestly, kind of new um, diagnoses at the time. Um, and so we finally got her into a good doctor that was willing to really work with her and kind of, you know, basically kind of uh, be a sleuth and figure it out. And so, um, he, you know, uh, he did and, and she was diagnosed with fibro fibromyalgia. Well, that, um, you know, that came right around the time, um, the diagnosis came right around the time that, um, that she came to me and said, I, you know, I, I feel like there's another one. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, are you sure? <laughs> And she said, yeah. And so, um, I said, okay. Um, uh, and so, you know, once we had, you know, McCandless or Mimi, you know, at that point we thought, okay, well now we'll see, now we're going to see really what kind of, what we're dealing with here. And, and so, um, at that point, uh, she was, you know, saw a specialist and, you know, they, it was fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, 
um, you know, take your pick. Um, there, they, nobody was quite sure what it was. Um, but she just, um, had pain in her, from her, you know, her spine going down her back. And so, um, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with, you know, what, um, what the cause of that pain and, and, um, uh, and sickness. Um, she said a lot of times she felt like she had the flu, um, and which fibromyalgia patients, you know, that's common. Um, and so, you know, I, at that point I knew that there was, there was an emotional element of it that was going on that was, was in the mix. You know, her parents split up, got divorced, you know, um, and so the world that she knew growing up, I mean, that happened to me when I was in third grade, when you're and and you think, oh, well, you know, she was 20 something years old when that happened with her parents. Well, it still has a tremendous effect on a person when the, you know, the reality and the and the base that they knew as a family all of a sudden is just torn apart. Um, and so, you know, at, the, at that point, I started to kind of recognize, uh, at least in my own thoughts, was like, well, is she you know, what part of it's physical, a physical sickness and what part of it is emotional. I never did figure out like where the, you know, where they meshed um, and what, you know, what you, what you can address on one side that, you know, would kind of untangle it and, and help, help, you know, help her to, to, um, you know, be, be healthier and uh, enjoy life more and stuff. Um, so um that was a con that was a constant a constant uh that was constantly on my mind what you know what is what can i be doing and and i think throughout that time i really i i i recognized that there um i i learned a really valuable lesson and that was i had to i had to find my own happiness and peace um in those really hard moments um, where, where she was suffering and, and, um, not functional. And, um, you know, I, I, it helped me to, to, um, to be with my kids when I could, um, when she couldn't, um, then I was, then I, I took over. I, you know, came home from work, got him, you know, got dinner on the table and, um, helped with homework and did that kind of stuff with them. And so, you know, in, in a general sense, dads, you know, um, don't necessarily always do that. You know, mom does that something, but, um, it, it, it put me in that role and helped me to, um, to step up in that, in that, you know, in those moments and, and be there for the kids and stuff where I don't know that I otherwise would have done that. Um, I would have probably would have just been like other fathers and relied on mom, you know, you know, go see mom for that. So, um, that was a, that was a, you know, uh, a defining moment for me. And then obviously, you know, having her pass away, you know, very suddenly and, and, um, you know, without any forewarning, um, was, um, you know, uh, a day I'll never forget. And, uh, I walked around for months and months after that and all like the only thought that I had was I can't believe this happened to me. I can't believe this happened to me.
Well, it's interesting when you say the question like that. I can't believe this happened to me. And so reading the book, you you discover this, and, and I really want to talk about this because this really stood out to me in the book. You come home from ANOC, which is your advanced non-commissioned officer school. You had just talked to her on the phone. Everyone was excited to see you. You were going to sneak into the house before anyone knew you were there. And then a uh, celebration ensuing. You came home, see the kids, you come upstairs, and you find her. Um, and so when you say, I can't believe this happened to me, I almost wonder what was your mind state of it. Does that make any sense with the question I'm asking? Well, I, th- I think what, um, you know, I, rem- I can remember, you know, getting close to the house. I mean, I, I called her from, you know, Page, Arizona, from Glen Canyon Dam, and and it was in the evening, it was dusk, and said, look, I'm going to try to drive through. Um, you know, if I get tired, I'm going to pull over. Uh, but, you know, unla- unlatch the front door um, so I can get in, um, and I'm going to try to drive drive straight through. And, um, and the crazy thing was that as I drove on, I kept, I would stop and, you know, gas up or pull over and get a drink or something and, and think, gosh, I'm not tired at all. And and so I, you know, come rolling in as the sun's coming up here and, you know, walk into the house and, um, and then, you know, go into the bedroom and see that she's asleep, but that she's not, you know, she, um, I could tell that she was not in a position that she normally sleeps in. And when you're married to somebody, you, you know, that, those are things that you know and, um, from being married to them and how, you know, right. how she'd pull her hair back and stuff and, and her hair was in her face. And, and so, um, you know, the reaching over and grabbing her and feeling, you know, I put my hand on her hip and she was, she was ice cold. Um, and, you know, in that moment, I mean, you, you, um, you in the blink of an eye, all of a sudden your life is absolutely totally different and you have to deal with that, you know? And the first thought that came to my mind was my kids, you know, what, how is this, you know, they need to know that their mom's gone, you know, and how am I going to do that? What am I going to say, you know, to them, 10 years old, eight years old and four years old. I mean, that, that's, that's a, in the life of children, that's a huge age difference. That's a huge gap between, you know, siblings and, 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 and understanding. I mean, I could tell that Matt and Adara were absolutely devastated and that Mimi didn't really understand what was going on. Um, and so, you know, I, that, that kind of, that was in the forefront of my mind in, in, um, in that moment was, was, was dealing with them. But also at the same time, you know, there, there were a couple other things going on in my mind. You, you know, she was no longer in pain. She was no longer suffering, you know. Uh, and, and I had seen plenty of that. And I have asked myself over and over again since then. I mean, it's almost 20 years now. What is, um, is, it, is it, you know, harder if somebody gets sick and, and, kind of dwindles and then dies or is it harder when somebody suddenly dies you know 
especially if it's a spouse. And, um, and so I obviously only had to, you know, to deal with the, the, um, some suddenly dying. Um, but you know, in that you, you start to think about, well, what was the last deep conversation that you had with that person, you know, and what was the, what was the, what did you talk about? What, you know, what were the last number of deep conversations that you had, you know, with that person? And, um, and, um, you know, and I, I'm so glad that I had really honestly felt that I had done everything that I could to make her life better. You know, um, I couldn't cure her sickness. I, I, I couldn't cure her emotional pain. Um, but in, in that, in those battles, I realized that, um, I didn't, I wasn't called to do that, to solve those problems. I was called to kind of, um, to serve, serve alongside her, serve her and, and be with her through those, through those, uh, you know, through the emotional pain, through the, the sickness. Um, and, um, and then, like I said, it was just the realize the realization she's no longer in pain anymore. She, you know, she's not suffering. Um, it, it, I've never felt two ways so profoundly in my life. And that was the pain of losing her and the, and, you know, and knowing that she was in a better place and she was no longer in pain and no longer suffering. So the next thing that comes to mind is you continue on with your military career. And at at a certain point, uh, your son actually joins underneath your command. Um, you do a deployment and you get back, find out there's some PTSD paperwork and that there has been, um, some stuff going on in his career, in his mind, in his life that he has never told you about, but it has sent kind of shock waves through everything, through your life, through his life, through your career, absolutely through his career. So can we kind of talk about everything that happened there? Yeah, and and what had happened was um, a letter was sent to the house, um, and uh, I was it, when we got home, Matt left uh, and moved down to California to work for Randy's dad, <clears throat> and um, and so you know he was down there, and we kind of thought, okay, well this is great. He's going to be you know working with his grandfather, who's very knowledgeable, wonderful man. Um, and gaining experience, uh, you know, with, with Noel. And, um, and so I get this letter for him and I had, I had just gotten used to opening his mail. If there was anything time sensitive, I would either call him or, you know, figure out a way to, to get him the information that he needed and stuff. Cause we were still in the yellow ribbon phase where, you know, you have to attend certain things. And, um, cause with, you know, with guard units, everybody kind of scatters to the wind when we, when you get back from a deployment. And so you don't have that captive audience like you do when you're deployed or, you know, or in the regular army. Um, and so, you know, he, um, he takes off and then I get that letter. And so I just, you know, kind of automatically opened it up and looked, looked, looked at it and couldn't believe, um, that it was a, you know, application for PTSD benefits, um, based on, the toxic environment of the aircraft maintenance section in my own company, the co- the section that I went out every day, walked through the hangars, 
talk to soldiers, you know, hey, how you guys doing? Is everything okay? You know, is there any, you know, is there anything you need? I mean, I was the first sergeant. It was my job to make sure that my section leaders had what they need to, you know, to execute in their domain. And, um, and so, um, you know, I, I had, I took a photo of it, of just the verbiage in it. And, um, and I sent it to my battalion commander. I mean, by then I, you know, I'm Sergeant major. So I sent him up to my battalion commander and I said, I said in the, in the text, you know, we can never, we can never, um, we can never um, completely eradicate toxic leadership uh, or, or feel like it's, you know, that it's, that it's taken care of. <clears throat> and so um, I sent that to my battalion commander and um, he called me on the phone and said, I, I want an investigation. And they launched a 15-6 investigation into the leaders in that section. Um, and so um, they took it very seriously. Uh, but at that point, I, you know, there was just huge, you know, huge disappointment, um, you know, for me as a father and also a leader, um, as a first sergeant and a sergeant major that I had something going on and I, right under my own nose, I didn't even know what was going on. And, and I, you know, remember thinking you, you know, when you're, when you're a security guard, you go around and you check all the locks, even though, 99% of the time, those locks are all secure and everything. You check them. And as much as you do that and think that, you know, you, you have, you, you have the lay of the land, you know, don't, don't kid yourself as a leader because there can be some stuff going on under, under, you know, uh, on the down low that, that you may not be aware of and that, that is being kept from you. Um, and that was, you know, that was another very hard pill to take. Um, that my own son couldn't come talk to me and tell me what was going on. And it was more just the hazing shit that, you know, that, um, that goes on with soldiers and the, that the leaders allowed to happen. And, you know, oh, what are you, you going to go tell your dad? You're going to go tell daddy now? You know, that kind of stuff. And, and so he felt boxed in a corner. Like he couldn't, didn't want to go talk to me because he, he knew, he knew that I, you know, that I would drop a hammer on those leaders and remove them from their position if they, you know, if things didn't change immediately. Um, but at the same time, he didn't want to deal with the aftermath of that. And so, you know, um, I, I couldn't fault his logic in that. Um, but at the same time, I didn't, you know, I didn't know as much as I tried to be out there among my soldiers and, and, you know, and, be the type of leader that never asks a soldier to do something that he wouldn't be, you know, or he or she wouldn't be able, willing to do in the first place. Um, you know, I went out and worked with them. I went back into those sections and, um, you know, I came from the armament section, uh, you know, they would come and get me and say, Hey, first sergeant, you know, um, come, you know, come do the safeties on this 30 millimeter chain gun. And, and um, we bet you can't do all of them and not get one of them clipped by the TIs, you know, um, and I, you know, okay, yeah, I'll come out, let's do it. And so, you know, I, I tried to be out there with them and stuff as much as I could. Um, and so, you know, him, him having that whole other experience was, um, was absolutely shocking to me. Um, and I, and I like, I 
still to this day wished I had known, you know, um, and he, you know, he's come to terms with it. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he points out that it, it wasn't my fault that, um, that he just, he felt like he couldn't come tell me and, um, he didn't want to have to suffer through the aftermath of that. Um, and so, um, you know, that set in motion a whole bunch of other things, you know, I, as a leader, I kept, I started thinking, well, what else am I not seeing? Well, my, and, and my that's leader. my question to you, Brad. I, and I have so many that come here and I, I, I want you to understand that these are going to be kind of hard questions that I'm asking you, but I, I truly reading the book want to understand them. The first one is he says, it's not your fault. Where does the fault lie then? That's my big question. Where's the fault lie? <clears throat> well, I, I mean, to me, it, it lies at the foot of the leader. Um, and, and I tried to tell, you know, the first sergeants that were, you know, that were under me when I was, when I was Sergeant Major, and then obviously the Sergeant Major that came in behind me, um, you know, don't kid yourself to think that you know everything that's going on because, you know, chances are you don't, and that there are things going on that, um, that are, are, you know, you're not, you're not going to be made aware of, um, and, you have to constantly be on, you know, the, the, the vigilance for toxic leadership can never stop. Um, and, um, and so, you know, to me, it, that was my responsibility to, to, to know, um, or at least to find out that that was the atmosphere going on. Cause honestly, when I, I could, I remember when I would come around, you know, those, those B six leaders over Matt's, uh, um, section, I mean, they, they grab him and, you know, pull him aside, you know, beside him and say, we're taking care of him first sergeant, you know? And so, so with that, uh, with you being the first sergeant, and I heard that you said, if you would have known, you would have come down hard. You would have dropped the hammer. Yeah. So here's where I try and differentiate. Do you drop the hammer as a father or as a first sergeant? <laughs> Well, um, I, I, I probably both. Um, but at the same time, I know that, um, if it was happening to Matt and, and it was happening to other soldiers and it was, it was absolutely happening to other soldiers. And I saw the aftermath of that because Matt was not one of the, Matt was not the only one, uh, from that section that got back and had issues. And so it, as a, you know, as the sergeant major in that role, at that point, um, my along with the other soldiers that were that were that we were identifying as at risk, and and every unit has the same you know every unit has the phenomenon when you get back of at risk soldiers having issues with drugs or alcohol or you know uh, you know abuse in the family you know uh, the the it, it's the full gamut of things. Um, and so uh, it was my job at that point to uh, make sure that um, these soldiers uh, knew about programs that were available to them. And, and the, uh, you know, as a guard soldier, you know, one weekend a month and two weeks in the summer, the majority of the younger guys don't, they have no idea, uh, especially after a combat deployment that, you know, there's a you know, VA hospital here in Salt Lake that's amazing. Um, 
I know there's horror stories out there and I'm not going to address that, but you know, they were absolutely responsive. You know, there, there are liaison people up there for, um, for, you know, Iraqi freedom for, uh, Afghanistan, uh, OEF deployments, um, that will get you in the pipeline and get you the help you need. And so at that point, it, it was my, became my job to make sure that those soldiers that, that we did our, the best we could to try to mitigate and help them to deal with what was going on in their lives, whether it was, you know, drugs or alcohol, um, you know, or what, or what have you, and, and make sure that they knew that there were programs available to them. And I escorted soldiers up to, um, up to VA, including my son. Um, but there were other soldiers that I escorted or other soldiers that I had escorted up um, that were having, having serious issues. And, um, and I can't say enough for VA and the, the, the people up there and the, um, and the you know, programs that are available um, for our soldiers, um, you know, absolutely, you know, amazing. And so it, for the last part of my, my service as the, as the Sergeant Major, I, that's what I focused on. And my son happened to be in that crowd. So let me ask you kind of the last question about your career. You spend all this time going up to command Sergeant Major. You try and model yourself after Jack, Roger, Sergeant Major Harris, all these guys. And you pride yourself that throughout most of your career, you did that. Then you hit this at the very end. And it's considered by you as a failure. It's very, it's very uh, pointed out in the book by you yourself that that was a failure on your part. So how do you, in all the resiliency that you talk about, because you talk about it a lot in your book and, and how to thrive and how to continue going from the very beginning, how do you thrive? How do you, I don't want to say make, make up for this, but how do you continue to know that you made a difference? Um, well, one thing that, that, um, that, uh, I would say, uh, is a, is a definite sign is that I still have soldiers that reach out to me and, and talk to me and, um, and that I have helped soldiers who are either out of the guard or still in the guard or, and, and I just got a, uh, an instant message from a soldier of mine, um, yesterday. Um, he's at Fort Bragg. He's going to Ranger school. You know, he joined aviation was in my command and he, uh, um, messaged me and said, you know, you were my first Sergeant Major and, and that meant a lot to me. Um, and so, and this guy's going on and doing great things. Um, but there's also those that are struggling. And so, um, with, uh, with Matt in the, in that crowd, one of the benefits of, of him is that he's kept in touch with many of the soldiers who have left, you know, left the, the guard following that deployment and gone on, you know, in, into other pursuits in their lives and, and other, and had other struggles and stuff. Um, but on a pretty regular basis, I asked Matt, have you talked to so-and-so? Have you talked to so-and-so? What's going on? Um, and, and if I feel the need, I don't have a problem. I still have all their phone numbers in my phone. I, you know, I have no problems reaching out, sending a text and letting a soldier know, um, you know, or a veteran know, hey, um, you know, we're still here for you. And, and I've had plenty of them reach out and I carry with me 
all the contact info to VA hospital, you know, the, those liaison people up there that have, you know, uh, are, oh, you're an OEF soldier. Okay. Well, um, here's who you need to contact or come up and see me and stuff. And so, um, to me that that's part and parcel of, of the, you know, the leadership role that I had was, um, is still caring for these, you know, for these young people and, and making sure that, that if they need help, I'm, I'm stepping up. And, and that's a great way to look at it with, uh, you know, a life of service to them and then continuing on afterwards, because I think throughout your career, uh, you search those people out after it was over. Um, and I think for you to go back and search for them is, is a whole new way of looking at that system. And it's kind of a 360 uh, of what you experienced, even though as, as great as they treated you, as much as they taught you, you still at the end had to kind of reach out to them. Now you're reaching out to the soldiers. So I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I want to get your final thoughts on your career as a whole just uh this book is about life lessons so what's your main takeaway from this book well i think the the main takeaway is just that you know like i kind of showed in in the beginning and and you you know you alluded to or at least got that from your reading of the book is is that you know i, I you know when when left the country moved moved out of the country kind of formulated you know uh, a you know, friends around me and stuff, came back to the States, finished high school, joined the army and, you know, went, um, and, um, and the amazing thing about the military or, or like we talked about, you know, uh, first responders or people in uniform, um, is that team environment, you know, and, um, you, you know, I, I sat in front of many soldiers and was asked, you know, questions, um, about, you know, the one question I'd get was, you know, well, how did, did you ever think that you'd get to the position that you're at? And, and I'd say, tell them the truth. No, absolutely not. When I was in your <laughs> shoes, I never even thought about it. Right. Um, but one of the things I like to point out to them is that, you know, if you've ever seen the movie uh, Kelly's Heroes, you know, I love that movie because, you know, everybody had a role in that movie. And, um, and I would tell these, these, um, I would go speak at the first, you know, first sergeant, uh, graduations for the first sergeant course or the master leader course. Um, and I would talk about, you know, there's, there's a lesson to be learned in that movie. And that's, you know, you had the comedian, you had the guy that could get things, you had the, you know, the guy with all the technical knowledge, the guy with the vision, you know, the guy with the motivation and stuff. I would say to them, look, in your, in your units and among your people, you, you know, you identify those people, you know, because every book you read, um, you know, um, some of the most recent books, uh, especially during, you know, during Iraq and Afghanistan, um, uh, one of the ones, um, something platoon, I can't, it doesn't come to my mind right now, but uh, an awesome book, um, Outlaw Platoon. Um, and they, they identified, you know, who was the comedian, who was the, you know, the motivator, you know, who was the one that, you know, the computer savvy person, they identified all those guys. And that's what the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it is that when you bring those, you know, those um, personalities and, um, and perspectives together, and, you know, you, you, you mold them or, or let them let a mesh into a team. Um, 
the, the possibilities are, are limitless. Um, and that's the beauty of, of the military. Um, and, and so, you know, yeah, I, I, um, leaving of one base and going to another, um, is always a hard thing, but I can guarantee you, you're going to be adopted into a new family. And then, um, and one thing I've told soldiers is, you know, you may do four years and decide I'm done. I'm, I'm out. I'm going to move on with my life, but I can promise you that when you get out on the outside and get some time between you and your service, you will start looking back on that time and then it will start to mean something to you. It'll, it'll speak to you in a way that it probably didn't before and it will, and it will reinforce um, your, um, you know, your belief in, in, this, in the, the great melting pot of this country and the great melting pot that's found in, in the service. Um, and so, um, I think that kind of just is a revolving message throughout the book um, that um, how those re- how those relationships affected me and 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 to be able to honor honor those people that um, that had a huge impact on me. Um, I I I'm um, I'm very happy and you know tremendous gratitude that the feedback I've got thus far in the book is just that um, that it's, it's, it's resonating with people. Well, I want to talk about where we can get this, uh, because, you know, like you said, lessons on life and leadership, everyone could take some of those, especially with ones that come from such a different place in so many parts of this book. They come from different parts of you, different parts of who you are, and I, I really would like people to get out there and get a hold of this. So let's talk about where we can get this book. Now, we've talked about it that you have done it in a special way, and that was one right now. It's digitally, so I'm guessing Nook Book is the only way to get it as of right now. And, and Amazon Kindle. Okay. Um, you can download it. So Amazon Kindle and Nook Book. Now, you've done a special thing with Barnes & Noble and then another bookstore, too. Um, so if we can talk about that a little bit of when the book will actually launch. Well, um, it's being published by Morgan James and they have agreements, um, with, uh, Barnes and Noble and, um, which is, that's the major player as far as the brick and mortar bookstores. There's a bunch of other independent ones that, that, um, I have a list of that I've really never heard of, um, that it'll be in there in those, in, you know, in those bookstores also. So June 14th, it'll get released into, um, those bookstores and, and mainly Barnes and Nobles. Cause that's where, you know, there's Barnes and Nobles pretty much there's almost 700 across the nation. So they'll be able to do that. They can order it on Amazon. Um, the audio book will be out probably a week after, um, the June 14th release. And I just completed the um, recording of the audio book. Um, so that will be out on audible. Um, and so they'll be able to at least hear, you know, hear me, narrate the book and not somebody else. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think it always ends up better. So let's go over real quick. We can get it on Nookbook, Amazon Kindle as of right now. Uh, June 7th, is that correct? June 14th. I'm sorry, June 14th. It was releases on paperback. Barnes & Noble is going to be the major backer, but you can get it on Amazon there. Also through the independent bookstores. Where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm on um, Twitter. Um, as uh, uh, author uh, BP Jones, um, and I'm on um, uh, Facebook, um, 
that was a little bit more difficult because that's a, <clears throat> a number involved in that. Um, hold on. I actually have it right here. Um, okay. So Instagram is author Bradley Jones. Uh, Twitter is author BP Jones. And then Facebook is Bradley.Jones.3914 um, is uh, my uh, Facebook identifier. I'm also on, um, I have a website on um, WordPress. So it's author Bradley Jones.wordpress.com. And on that, um, I've been loading, uh, uploading blog posts um, that were deleted sings and outtakes from the book. Um, in many cases, backstory um, that isn't necessarily included in the book because of um, of editing and first for uh, word count stuff like that. So I've been going back through all the chapters and and uh, I was I was allowed to put so many photos in the in the book, um, but I have way more photos than that. So I wanted. Uh, readers have a more immersive experience if, you know, um, after they read the book, if they want to go find out, cause there were some chapters written about my childhood and stuff, um, that didn't make the, didn't make the final edit. So I wanted readers to be able to ex go, you know, and read about me and experience those things. So a lot, uh, a lot more to, to read in the deleted scenes and then a lot more photos. Well, and on, of course, my website for the show, we'll be able to put some more pictures for you. You filled out the intake form, so there's everywhere that people can contact you. They just need to click on it. Guys, you can find him on Twitter. You can find him on Facebook. You can find him on Instagram. You can find him at his WordPress website. Be ready for this book to come out. June 14th, it's going to hit the bookstores. Independent Barnes & Noble is going to be the major one. Guys, if you want some more of me, you can find me on Instagram, the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. Guys, make sure you go check out this book, Treading the Deep, Inspirational Lessons on Life and Leadership by Bradley Jones. Don't forget to go check out our sponsor, Police Coffee, because Police Coffee will get you going in the mornings. It's an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And our specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Our coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also serves an important cause. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And if you go on there and you order, if you enter the code DJK10, you get 10% off your order. That's at policecoffee.com. Don't forget to go check them out. Also, swing by the website, dtdpodcast.net, where you can see more pictures of Brad. You can check out some more information about him and get the video and audio form of this episode. Guys, that's going to be it for the show. That's Brad. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See ya. <laughs>